Welcome to episode two of Did You Know the Podcast? The series is dedicated to telling the untold stories of the executives of colour who have been trailblazers in the UK music business. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this month I'm joined by Glyn Aikins, someone who started out as a fan and is now co-president of the hugely successful Since 93 label. Glyn has had an interesting journey, but before we got into it, as with all my guests, I asked him a very simple question. Why the music business? Here's what he had to say. It was a, a happy accident. In my youth, I didn't really know that you could have a career in the music business. I certainly didn't know what the music business entailed. I guess when I look back at it, it was like a natural progression because I used to be a, a DJ and I used to be like a like small promoter. I used to put on parties myself, which as a consequence, I was always in record shops. And when I was in record shop in, in record shops all the time, I met a girl who worked in a PR firm and who offered me two weeks work experience. This is why this is all happening while I was at university. And that was my first foray into the music business, doing two weeks work experience. And I'm and I was like coming to the end of my course at university and I was studying business and accounting. I didn't really want to do that. I was bored. And I worked part-time in Boots, the chemist. I certainly didn't want to do that because I was that was boring for me too. So when I did work experience at this place, at, at, at this at this place, this PR firm called Media Village, at the end of the two week stint, I was offered a job. That's kind of where I discovered like the music business in, in its sort of entire. I started to learn about the music business in its in, entirety. So in my head, I was like, you get to work around the thing that you absolutely love. Why not? You know, and I never looked back since. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So let's go back to the young Glenn Aikens before he was that great entrepreneur and the self-promoter. Tell us about the music that you grew up listening to and the things that made you fall in love with music. My dad had this, like, I guess what it would be called nowadays is a sideboard, right? But that was like the hi-fi system, right? It was like this massive sideboard, which had a record player on the top. And you sort of the, the front of it opened out like an oven door opened out and all the records were in there. And all, 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 all we knew is we weren't allowed to touch it. As a child, when you're not allowed to do something, of course, it, 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 all it does is just enhance your, your inquisitiveness. So I just developed a fascination with, you know, these bits of plastic in the sideboard, which of course were, were records. And um, I guess my dad fancied himself as quite the DJ. Cause, and, I, and I'm thinking like in those times, it's about in the early eight, in the early 80s, you know, where sort of the way sort of black people used to commune everyone would go around to one another's house and that's where they would have a, you know, they'd have their get-togethers, have their parties, they'd go on late into the night, you'd be sent off to bed. Although I don't know how they expect you to sleep with all that noise, with all that noise. But um, my dad used to host these parties and be playing, playing and playing the records. I guess that's where I first became interested in it because I was just really more interested in what he was doing and why people were so happy. So the young Glenn Aikens has been sent to bed. You can hear the tunes reverberating through the floorboard as the adults are, are enjoying the night's entertainment. What are three songs that you can remember from that time filling you with that emotion of, and that love for music? I'm Ghanaian, so High Life was a big factor in those, in, in, in those playlists, I guess we'd call them now. Sweet Mother was a song. That that was played over and over again. And like, I think it's like it's some sort of rare passage that you needed to know the words of that song. Um, there was this song called Gypsy Love. 
it's one of them songs that I've never been able to find on vinyl anywhere in my days of in the in the record in in record shops. But I like literally I've got an MP3 of it and a, and a, like a a forever saved YouTube link of it, and I always go back to it from time to go back to it from time to time. That's literally one of my like in terms of my earliest memory of those times. I always play that song to kind of take me back to those those times. There was another one by. I'm struggling to remember the name. I think it was like Dr. JC. Dr. K. JC and his Noble Kings. There was an art as an, an album called Sicky High Life. And like and there was like multiple songs on that album that used to play all the time. And so yeah, that is those those are the three sort of things that I think about my earliest memories of music and people enjoying themselves. Those were definitely the sort of the backbone of the soundtrack, if you like. So once you've done you've gone to university you're working in Boots, you've discovered that there is a music business out there you can be a part of. How does that conversation take place in a household where you know, we both grew up, you know, me with West Indian parents, you with Ghanaian parents, education being the absolute key and looking at something that, you know, looking at a future where you've been to you and you've, you've got something that's going to carry you through for the rest of your life. What was the conversation like when you said, mum, dad, you know, it's... Business account is not for me. It's music all the way. The conversation around sort of starting a career in music because my dad was like, "You're just not serious." My mum was sort of kind of knew intuitively knew. So when I when I told her about it, it was it didn't come as a surprise to her. She was like, "Look, it's your life. <laughs> it's your life. You if you if you think that if you think that this is the way for you, then do it." But don't come and tell me in six months time that you don't like it or you're bored, because then then I'll be upset, you know. And that was that was that's what how my mum uh, approached it with me. So, of course, I just took that and ran with it. One of the things I'm really I'm really interested in was that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and that wonderful ability to to self promote. Because you're out there putting on parties. You're not only putting on parties, but you're booking yourself as the DJ at the party. You teach yourself to, to DJ with one turntable, which is an incredible feat because you want to master the art. How much of that, that real entrepreneurial spirit, the ability to self-promote, were you able to carry across as you entered into the music business? And how important are the lessons that you learned then for you today? I think it's this thing that still drives me today, you know. I think the reason that I, start, I started DJing and started putting on parties and stuff is because... I, it always comes back that back to this thing where I always thought that for DJing, for example, going out to nightclubs, whatever, and, and various parties and stuff, and then listening to the DJs that were there. A lot of the time, I'd think, you know what, this DJ's not very really good. I think I could do. I think I could do it better myself. Right? So I had one turntable. Learned how to learn how to mix. I used to lodge in my friend's house in Dulwich, and she actually used to play for a sound system. So that house was filled with records. Right. And so that sort of gave me, I guess, that gave me my education into music beyond the music I listened to. And a bunch of friends who were sort of DJs, who were DJs as well. One of them used to live in Finchley Road, on the Finchley Road, where we used to go to his house and like practice. And I was like, you know what, we can just do this. We could just do this ourselves. But trying to get booked as a DJ was like virtually, it was sort of virtually impossible because like, it was like, well, why would anybody book you to DJ like What's your reputation? Where have you played before? That's why I should book you now. So I'm like, I was at university. We had a venue there and I was a part of the African Caribbean Society. And part of the way they used to raise money for it was, was, was to put on parties. So I'm like, 
I can put on the parties for you. So then I want you to book myself and book us the DJ, book some other DJs, and we'd have some, some bang-up parties. And then it was like, well, actually, if I could do it at the African Caribbean site, well, perhaps I could do it for us anyway. You know, so you used to, so link, you know, linked up with another few few friends and used to just book out nightclubs, you know, and put on and put on parties. I didn't know that it was entrepreneurial to do all that stuff. I was just like, I was just doing it because that's who I wanted to do. And I thought we have to try and create the opportunity for, I have to create the opportunity for myself or we have to create the opportunity for us. So therefore, this is, this is what I had to hand. Why don't we just do it? I didn't think of it as entrepreneurial. I just thought, well, we just need to do it. So once you've done your two weeks at, at Media Village and you've seen that there's a music business that, you know, you've glimpsed behind the curtain, and you've seen the business exist, at what point did you really believe that you could be a part of it and that you really wanted to be a part of it? And who are those people that gave you the belief that you could be a part of it? Because I think that for all of us that have been through the, through our various times in the business, there's always been one or two people that have proved to be inspirational at the start of a journey that's kind of giving you the belief to kind of to, to, to keep going. Who are those people that kind of that really showed you the part, showed you the way? The chap that owned the PR company, Media Village, this guy called Shabs, who's, who, who is the, uh, the, the founder of Relentless Records, he gave me my first opportunity. He gave me my first job at Media Village. And I think, I remember him saying that, um, well, I think there was two things. Because at Media Village, they, were, they, were, they, used to do, they used to do club and radio promotions and, uh, and press, right? And... So in those days, you know, you just had vinyl and you're mailing out vinyl records, you're putting them in envelopes and send them to a database of DJs. And what also used to happen is that the DJs used to come into the office to check out what the latest vinyl releases that he had or what, you know, what they could get um, to be playing out at the weekend, right? It just so happened is that all the DJs that came into the office, I knew them all from my time of just hanging out in record shops, A. And then B, I remember Shab saying that, one of the reasons he offered me the job is at the end of the two weeks work experience, I went, I went up to him and shook his hand and said, thank you for the experience. He was so impressed by that. And then based on me, like looking like I knew everybody too, I think, it, it, I guess he felt, okay, this guy could be, uh, this guy could be quite good. He made a reasonable choice. I have to say, given, given your history, but what's the, what, yeah, I agree. So, so what, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying nothing. So what piece of advice did he give you at the start that stayed with you? Or was there a piece of advice that anybody's given you that stayed with you across the past 20 odd years? I don't know if it's a single piece of advice. It's more what I learned from him at that time in terms of how to operate in business and how to be professional, how to be disciplined, and just how to follow your beliefs with with passion and verve. I guess, I guess sort of learning from him is sort of where I sort of honed my ear and my nose for what, for things that I think are hit records or hit hit songs. I came away from that there with that. And so it's all like that's the foundation that I am built on, professionally speaking. And I think it's more that than it was a single piece of advice. So you've embedded yourself into Media Village, Shab starts Relentless Records, you become a part of Relentless. And I think there's no question that the records that you signed during that people were a soundtrack for, for, for many Saturday night dances. It'd be really interesting for you to talk through your journey with Heartless Crew, So Solid, your memories from that time. 
the things that you learned from working with those people, I mean, all of those guys that were essentially entrepreneurial, real businessmen trying to be out there on their own, which was a unique situation for artists, but also for black artists at that particular time. What did you learn from, from the So Solids and the Heartlesses? And how did you come to be in and around that world at that time? Every once in a while, I would walk into the office with a record I'd heard the night before. I'm like saying, tell everyone, this record is a hit. Not that I had any idea of what I was talking about and, you know, in terms of how, how records become hit hit records. I'm like, this record sounds like, it, like I was just purely on the, this record sounds like a hit to me. It's massive. And one of the records I came into the office with was Chocolate Boy, Sweet Like Chocolate. And at the time, nobody could tell me I was wrong. People are like, oh, how are you going to get on the radio and this and all, all these questions, which were pertinent questions at the time, but questions I couldn't possibly answer because I had no idea what they were talking about. Right? But, I, but you still couldn't tell me I was wrong. This record's a hit. That's it. The end of story. Massive. I know because I know. That was my attitude. And then, of course, that record went to number one in the charts, right? And I did this a few times, right, with with various records that all ended up in the charts, right, in top 10, whatever, right? So um, at the time of starting Relentless Records, I was out on a tour. We were, do, we were doing a, a, a sort of a promotions campaign for Activision, who had just started this. It was a, it was a Wu-Tang Clan-themed beat em up game like Street Fighter. So I organised this national tour, national competition, which we did in in, in in the guise of a tour. And I went on tour up and down the country with Tim Westwood, where the people would be playing this competition and there'll be an after party, which Tim Westwood was DJing, DJing at. And literally every city we went to, there was this one record that played every time. And people were going mental. And it was it was a re it was an artful Dodger and Craig David's rewind, and I remember calling up the office saying, "I have heard this record absolutely everywhere. It is massive, right? I've heard it up and down, and I literally went almost everywhere in this country, right? And I, and and with that, you know, the record was played in every place, and the and the reaction was the same without fail. And I'm like, this record's massive. And at the time, I didn't really, I didn't know anything about UK Garage. And I wasn't necessarily a fan. Of, I wasn't really a fan of house music then. Because I think in those, like back then, when night, in nightclubs, like there was always two rooms. One was the, the big room was like house and garage. The little room was R&B and hip hop. And I was always in the little room. I was always in the little room. And you'd venture into the big room and you'd just hear, I'd be like, nope, I'm not having that. Sorry. <laughs> but... Is like so that so that was like the so I didn't actually even know what I was listening to when I heard that so when I heard that song in truth but that was the first the sort of my intro I mean I guess sweet like chocolate was the other was 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 really the first one but even then I didn't not classify that as UK garage so after discovering that like everywhere people were going mental in clubs to that to that song I'm like that was the that was the so that ended up being the very first record that I like, brought in and signed was Artful Dodger and Craig David's Rewind. It became a it became a massive hit, you know, and I think and, and that was the first record that Relentless ever released, um, and it was a you know massive, it's not like a million copies or something or, or something like that. And I think they looked at me then and said, "All right, so you think you think you can you can do you can do A and R, and you can you think you can spot these hit records?" Then they were like, "All right," and I was like, "Well, yeah," and they were like, "All right, go on then," and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
And even at that point, I had really no, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really know what A and R was in that in that way. All I know, all all I thought was like, of course I can spot these records. Do you know what I mean? It's how how difficult is it? One of the interesting things you said there was there was a real instinctive thing about this is a hit. I love this. I've heard it. I know it's big. Don't worry about everything else. This tune's the one. And you then went on to say, you know what, but that's what I did then. It's not what I do now. So first of all, what's changed in terms of the way you think about a and ring and how you and how you bring that skill and, wait, and how you use that gut instinct? And secondly, was it that same gut instinct that signed so solid and Pied Piper. Did you use that same gut instinct at that time, even though people were going, what about radio? What about TV? Where are we going to place the video? Was it always about, this is just an absolute tune? That was my guiding thing. It was always based on gut instinct, right? But I also had this thing of, because I used to, I used to, got the, the club nightclubs I would, I would hang out in or go to, were always R and B and hip hop and dancehall. So my whole thing was, if there is a song from another genre or another scene that makes its way into this into these clubs that play this music, and people are going mental, then it must be a big tune because it's, it's it is basically crossed out of its own scene, right? So if it can cross out of its scene that way, then it does. There's no then then it, there's no reason why it then just can't cross over generally, to the to sort of a wider mainstream audience. So during that whole journey where you're having success, working in a record company, how did you find it being a black man in that in, in that kind of environment? Because clearly the business is 20 years down the line or more than 20 years down the line from when, when you first started with, thankfully, a lot more people of colour. But how, what were the kind of challenges that you face as a man of colour making your way in the early stages of, of the industry? I guess when I when I'd go and go and speak to certain managers or I guess certain lawyers and stuff, it, it felt like they just didn't believe I was who I said I was or I did what I said I do, and they're always looking to speak to somebody else. Was that about race? I can't say for sure, but it's kind of my instinct tells me that. So that definitely played a large part. That definitely played a large part in it. And also at the time, there wasn't that many. There just weren't that many like other black. Not even just black A and R people. There's weren't just amount of many black people in the music business. Full stop. There were a few. There, there were a few, but not, not lo- certainly not, not loads. I guess it was a, it's a, it was, it was an interesting time. But I guess you know when you you grow up with your parents telling you that you're gonna have to work twice as hard or ten times as hard to you know to to be given half of the opportunity as your as your as your white counterpart so i just took it as red that that was that's what it that's what it was so therefore i just had my head down work just working 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 and i'm like well you can't in my head is like well you just can't take the success away from me so this is just this is just how i'm going to exist you and i have a shared history i mean we you know of selling a lot of albums together with emily sando you did an incredible job, sold 5 million albums around the world. I think it would have been fair. So a lot of people felt that there would have been a, a, an opportunity at some point within the organisation that you were in for you to make the next step on from a senior a and manager into the boardroom or whatever. 
Did you feel at that point that you were passed over, ignored, not given the opportunity? At the time, people used to say that to me, oh, you should be running a label, you should be running a label. And I remember, I remember you used to be saying, yeah, I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to do that, right? I don't really want to do that. And then the other, but then also, nobody inside the label was coming to me saying, well, you know, these, you're, you're clearly a talented individual and you've brought the company lots of success. Let's, let's look at where you're at. You know, let's look at where you're at. These are the things you're good at and these things you're not good at. And this is how we're going to help you get good at the things that you're, you're not good at. Do you see what I mean? Because either way, because either way, when you look at those things, either way, there's beneficial to the. It ends up being beneficial to the company if they can help you get better at the things that you're not so good at. Because nobody comes in and knows. Somebody comes in and knowing how to do everything. And I think that I think that is where the inertia in the system actually is, and as it pertains to race in the, in those systems, and nobody actually is there sat there to help you. You kind of got to figure it out on your own, and either you can and survive, or you don't figure it out and you don't survive. So what? So what has changed? Really interestingly, again, you said that you didn't want to run a label, and now you're a man running a label. Clearly, you were in a situation there where you're unbelievably successful at the run of the town. What changed in the mind? And the ambition of Glenn Aikens for him to kind of go, you know what, I want more. But also, I want more and can I get it here? And if I can't get it here, why can't I get it here? My wife had just given birth to my to my, my young son. And I thought to myself, when, I, when my son looks at me, what do, what do I want him to see? Right, and I know that sounds like awfully sort of that that's that can sound awfully pedantic, but it was a very important conversation I had with my with myself, right? And I'm just like, and I'm just, and, I, and I'm like, given the state of the world, and you know, given the very the challenges you've as a young black man, the challenges that you're going to face growing up in you know in in Britain, Britain, and into and 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 in, and in British society, I think that your first example starts at home. So what I would like my son to see is that his father is, you know, is is a captain of industry because then there can be no, then there can just be no excuse for him to not know what's possible. For me, I needed to get out. Of, I guess I, I I needed to get out of my own way and say, you know what, I, I'm go, I should be, I should be, I should be a captain of industry. I've you know over the last twenty years. I think that uh, I think I've shown that I have the ability to do it. I actually know what I'm not good at, and and then you can go about improving, improving, improving those areas. It goes back to when the at the, the the same time when I was DJing. The whole reason when I was I started DJing, putting on parties in nightclubs and stuff. It was the same principle. I think I can do this myself, and so it was. I guess it was just a. It was a time, a, a sort of a time of self-realization, and also just getting having this sort of confidence and self-belief. Like, well, yeah, you can do it yourself. And you know what? If it doesn't work, at least, at least, at least you 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 sort of quote unquote died it by your by your own hands, if you like. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like there's nothing worse than working in a corporation. You get fired by someone you've never met. So, do you think that the economic power that black music has attained in the past two or three years? Particularly with a, an exponential rise in its growth and its and its success, has made it easier for black A and R guys to be represented at a boardroom level and given more presence around the table. That's how the music business operates, by and large. You know, you go where the where the where the market is telling you is you know it, it, that they want you to be they want you to be operating right and. 
you know the way that it, the way that black music has exploded into into the sort of the perennial sound of the mainstream, right? I mean, sort of it is the perennial sound of the main of the main mainstream sort of British music culture here. I don't think anybody could have predicted. I don't think anybody could have predicted, but as it's happened, I think everybody, I think everyone has recognised that you know, obviously this this has happened, and so therefore it demands more representation within those companies just on a basic level you want to be a credible partner to you know a young artist and then manager those artists and those that artist or group of people need to feel like they're represented within the organize organization you know um so it stands to it so therefore it just stands to reason it probably should it probably stood to reason in the past but it didn't quite happen in the way that it's happening now there's still a very very energetic debate about the fame or ethnic minority split or representation in, in boardrooms across the country, in our particularly pertaining to our own business. So how does that change? When does that change? How are things like the Black Music Coalition being able to drive those initiatives and, and, and hold people's feet to the fire to kind of make them look at what they're doing and ensure that there, there is a fair gender split, ethnicity split, and that, that those voices are heard and that they're able to speak truth to power in the only form that really matters. The events that have transpired while in lockdown, I think everyone's had their sense of justice purified and, and, and understood that no longer can you run away from these conversations. To my knowledge, most of the companies done the responsible thing and tried to de- deal with these, these, these issues head on and hear what the problems actually are. They weren't aware of what the issues were or that the issues were quite so severe and and deep-rooted. So therefore, just in terms of, you know, just social responsibility, you know, you know, so people people just understand they kind of got to address these things, you know, address these things. We've also seen a rise of entrepreneurialism from young artists and managers who kind of work outside of label system, right? And success, and we've seen more and more and more examples of people doing that successfully. It's also a response from labels and from from label systems to to that too. The way that the, the world operates now, and the way that the, the way that the sort of business operates, you can't get left behind thinking that your way is the is is the only way. When people are coming through and basically showing you that your way is isn't isn't the only way, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to adapt, and you have to adapt your methods. You're gonna have to, and 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 part of that adaptation is you're gonna have to adapt the people that within within your organisation. It needs to reflect wider society. You know, if all these companies are in London, and you look at the population of London, 40, 40, some 40% of it is like black or Asian. But then when you look at the, when you look some, when you look inside of some of these companies, that's, it's not, it's certainly not reflected in the, in the, in the same way. Is that a problem? Yes, it is. So are you hopeful that the initiatives that all of the major labels have taken are honest attempts to redress the balance or potentially just window dressing? to show that they recognise as a problem as opposed to actually dealing with it effectively? I mean, I can only really speak for Sony because I, I, I'm privy to what is actually going on within the organisation, what I hear about the other organisations. Some of it sounds positive, some of it doesn't, some of it doesn't. But within Sony, I would say, yes, there is meaningful, this is a, this is a meaningful 
approach and attempt to to um to make real real change in the way that those places operate and 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 what they actually end up looking like i think that this issue and this topic can't be allowed to drop if it goes away then we might not see the type of change happen which we feel that for the first time in a certainly in my living memory or my career we actually felt possible this time around with all that's gone on in the world with all that's gone on in the world and given the conversations that certainly I've been party to, it feels like for the for the first time there is an appetite to actually change things rather than give window dressing to the to the issue, hoping people will just shut up and go away. Do you know what I mean? Hoping it will die down when the news cycle changes. I think that's a very, very important point because I think a lot rests on executives like yourself and the others around the different in the varying companies. One of the things that I was really interested in, one of the things that was a talking point amongst a few of us, was the Black Music Coalition's attempts to remove the words BAME and urban from the lexicon of the 21st century music industry. How important do you think that is going forward? And, you know, there are some people that will say there are other fights that are bigger than that that need to be addressed first. What do you say to them? There may be bigger fights, but I don't think you can have the bigger fights if you don't deal if you're not dealing with the basics. Bame, what what does it what does it mean? It feels like if you're a company, you can hide behind it, calling people black or Asia or Asian, or, or, or recognizing people for how, how they identify themselves. I don't see why that's a problem. Why do people have to be all lumped together for what? Exactly. There's, I don't. I've never. I've not heard a good reason for that. I think the word urban it, it comes with a slightly more complicated history and a slightly more complicated debate. Urban t- tends to mean one thing here, and I know it's, it means it, it means something completely different in the US, for example. If urban is a catch-all phrase that lumps together a whole load of genres of music, right? If you have to have a catch-all phrase, don't really see why you can't call it black music. Don't see what the problem. Don't see what the problem is with that. I don't also. I also don't see the problem with calling the music by the name of its genre type of thing. You know, if we think genre is important today, I don't see why you can't call it rap music or R and B or or and or, and, and, and or reggae and so on. And so on. I don't see. I don't understand why you can't do that. I think we're sort of in danger of having people believe that black music and its culture is monolithic when it isn't. Right? Call it rap music or R and B or what? I don't. I don't. And then it kind of gives gives you the variety and the the variety and the and the and the and the range. You know, the range. But having having said that, if it's called if you want a catchall phrase, call it black music. Absolutely fine with me. So you've been appointed to the board of governance at London South Bank. You're playing a prominent role in the discussions around diversity within Sony, where your label's housed. How personally responsible do you feel for ensuring that real change is enacted in the areas where you can be responsible? It's, it's absolutely essential that I do whatever I can uh, to make sure that change happens. Because it's not... And I remember saying this to somebody, it's like, what we're actually fighting for, the type of change we're actually fighting for here we may not actually see the ben- feel the benefit of it, but our children will. If I was going to take away one thing from this is like, if 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 we're able to change, you know, hearts and hearts and minds and attitude and attitudes, there that w- which my son will will feel the benefit of that he walks into a more equal playing field, then we've done our jobs. You know, it, because I like to explain this to someone in to someone the other day. It's like, in my view, I think some someone misunderstood 
what all this is about, right? And it, and I had to explain to them, in my view, nobody's here, nobody's standing here asking for special treatment, right? We're asking you to make it, we're telling you to make it fair because it's not fair. This isn't about hiring black people to do the black stuff, which is what a lot of people, which is a lot of people tend to sort of the default thinking. I just use an example. Like when you need a music video for that white artist or whatever, or, or non-black artist, why don't you think about a black music director to do that? Because we've all grown up in Britain. We've all grown up. We all have the same reference points. We all understand British. If, you know, if you're, if this is your area, we all understand British culture and British popular culture. So why wouldn't you? And that person has to stop and think. I'm like, oh, actually, I see, I see what you're saying. I'm like, well, put it like that. Isn't it obvious? Like, is it, doesn't this stuff become obvious? And it's like, nobody's, nobody's sitting there saying that you must hire, you, you must hire us because we're black. That's not what anybody's saying. What we're saying is make it fair because we're good enough. So we always like to do some quick fire questions at the end. You've still got a long way to go in this business, Glenn, but what are your remaining short and long-term ambitions? Long-term, I just want, I would like to be, build the label, it to be, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of commercial and cultural powerhouse in, you know, in, in the back of my mind, the thing that actually spurs me on is actually Motown and basically what they achieved is 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 the is the thing that I always go back to and then after that you look at things like Def Jam and 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 Bad Boy and Rock Nation and stuff but to me where it start where it started Motown is where it started is where you were shown what could be possible so Motown is the thing in my head that this is what we're trying to this is what I'm trying to 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 build to leave it to leave and also to have left a, a legacy such as such such as such as Motown has and wanted to pick up on that point about culture. We had the pleasure of speaking to Darkus, and he's obviously working on Ireland. There's a culture that comes with being a part of a legendary label. How much of the culture is important to you in term in terms of that ratio of culture to, to musical legacy and leaving that behind? I think it goes hand in hand, right? I think you kind of set the cult. You, you set the tone for the culture that your company of what how how your company operates by by the things that you do right and by the and by the people that you work with you know for from and this might be a narrow view but my view of island records is my view of island records is by and large you know is legendary because of the art the legendary artists that you work with it be it be it bob marley or you or you too and if you go back in history, like I said to to Motown, when you look at the it's legendary artists they worked with that that had that made an indelible impact on culture. What's your biggest regret in the business? Do you have a biggest regret? Yeah, I think I regret not doing it sooner. To be honest with you, because I <laughs> because I had the opportunity. No, because truth be told, I had the opportunity to do this a lot sooner. But for for the, for various reasons, I didn't do it. I think because in my head, I think I. Maybe I was just a bit too nervous or just apprehensive and I should have just thrown myself in at the deep end. But I think if, if I have there's one regret, that's what it would be. But other than that, I think, you know, everything, most things happen for a reason and most things don't happen before their, their time. That's true. Or maybe you're just scared what mum and dad might have said when you were leaving, walking out of university without the degree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> More exactly. to the point. <laughs> yeah, probably. So, probably that, yes. Who provides you with inspiration or who's been, or who's been the biggest inspiration to you? You know, I'd actually have to say it's my mother is probably my biggest inspiration because 
that's where I get the, I'll just do it myself. I can just do it myself. I can make this happen myself. My mum is like such the hustler and stuff. And she actually managed to, on her own, raising two young black boys, managed to build herself like a mini property empire. And as you know, part of the Did You Know podcast is about mentoring the next generation, find that find that young person that has the same light in their eyes that you did and wants to get to the next stage. So how do you feel about mentoring a person and what kind of advice would you give that person right now? I need to be able to, you know, help give guidance and opportunity because I'm in a position to now to to the next generation the next generation or somebody like myself. Give them an opportunity to kind of, you know, to pursue whatever their dreams are. And so we are in terms of, so we've just started an internship uh, at, at, um, at Sony. And since 93, which is the label, is it's the first ever A&R internship ever in the Sony in, in Sony music. So A we're starting that way in terms of trying to uh, uh, you know to provide a platform for for young for young sort of burgeoning executive talent. Also in terms of in just in terms of advice you like, know I think actually Ricky actually said it best actually um which I actually which I agree with is that he said to, we were talking to some young people and then we're like this when you decided what you want to do focus on what it is rather than what it looks like. Right. Because I think it's it's quite easy to be blinded by the lights when you're young. Yeah. And, you know, you look at Instagram, you think it's the truth. Right. Or you think you're, what you're seeing is the truth, is the truth. And like when you scratch a little bit deeper, it you know, it, you're, what you're looking at is the end product, not the journey of how to get there. So that's what so that's the advice is focus on that. Focus on the actual journey to get there rather than the the, the destination itself. And if you could go back. 20-odd years and talk to the young Glenn Aikens as he started on his journey, what would your piece of advice to him be? And what would you tell him not to do? Uh, when the opportunity comes, take it, is what I, should, is think, I think is what I would tell myself. In terms of what not to do, you know, I'm not entirely sure that I would particularly change anything, you know, because I think it's all... It's all... Um, it's all led me to here, and I'm quite happy, and I'm quite happy with where... Where, where, with where with where I'm at and the and the reasons that I do what I do now and what and and the things that the things that I do, the beliefs that drive me on I'm quite happy with them so I don't I'm not entirely sure. and that's a culmination of the last twenty years of experiences so I don't think I would actually change anything in that in that respect actually and what's your hope for people of color in the music business in the twenty first century more success more just more and more and more and more success is my is my hope and prayer. We talked about your legacy earlier, but what do you see your legacy in the business? What would you like it to be? How would you like to be remembered? I guess I want people to remember me as someone who was a, you know, an advocate for black music in in Britain because that's what my entire the six all, all all of the success I've had over the last. 20 years has all been with black music and all the success I'm, you know, I think uh, I hope to enjoy in the future will be with black music and black artists and black and predominantly with black artists, I think. So I think a real advocate for black music is is, is the way that I would want to, I would, I would want to be remembered. And finally, where will Glen Aikens be in 2030? In Barbados, chilling the fuck out. And I can't think of a final way to finish. <laughs> Glenn Aikins, president of Since 93, good friend. Thank you for spending time with the Did You Know podcast. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast which is a downstreet production. A very big thanks to this month's guest, Glenn Akins, for sharing his stories and to Danny D, partner and original pioneer. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our producer, Cass Denton, to Ella Ruby on the socials and to 320 for our music. Big thanks to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for gathering support and the WX team lighting the Did You Know Fires. They're a social enterprise agency addressing the lack of diversity in the PR and media industry. Big up to them. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. To find out more, follow us on our Did You Know platforms across all socials. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. Look out for our next episode with Faye Hoyt, Senior Director of Marketing at EMI Records, available on February 5th from wherever you get your podcasts. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.